Hey everybody, and welcome to the How to Write a Book podcast. Um, y'all, I am so um, happy for everything that is going on within our writer's journeys. It is December, and I am super happy to present this interview to you today. And I want to say congratulations for everyone who joined us uh, for National Novel Writing Month. They are an excellent organization, and I cannot just support them enough. They are amazing. Um, so this interview, we are talking about overcoming dyslexia and other writing obstacles with author and editor Josh Kelly. Now, I think you are going to love, love this interview. Josh was just so down to earth. He's a super cool guy. And I absolutely love how he talks about getting to know yourself and the ways in which he got to know himself as a writer and how he used it and how he adapted it. And just like um, in the title, Overcoming Dyslexia, and you guys, the rest of his journey as well has so many interesting and crazy obstacles that are amazing to hear how he overcame, how he conquers, and his future plans. You are are going to get so much great information on how to do the same for your writing journey. So y'all, let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Write a Book podcast, the show that helps you plan, write, and publish your book, even if you're a beginner or just feel like one. Now, for your host, she's written over a dozen books and helps others bring their books to life. Here she is, Maciel. To record. And all right, all right. Everyone, uh, welcome to the How to Write a Book podcast. Um, I am so excited to meet with um, author, um, writer, uh, development editor, ghostwriter, a book coach, Josh Kelly. Uh, Josh, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm yeah, really happy to be here. Me too. Me too. You know, just reading your bio, going over um, your book, um, your message is inspirational and especially kind of like your interesting story and your background. Um, I mean, a little, a little bit of just everything. So before we kind of dive into your writing, your process and everything about you, I'll give a little bit about you um, for our listeners in case they don't know who you are yet. So Josh Kelly, is a uh, pastor, bartender, and adjunct, um, or has been an adjunct biblical studies professor. You are a traditionally mm-hmm. published author of Radically mm-hmm. Normal Harvest House, novelist, writing coach, developmenter, a developmental editor, and ghostwriter. And you love communicating life-changing truths in an engaging way and helping others do the same, which is something that we do in the podcast. Yeah. And um, even uh, more about you is you've been married for over 20 years. You have two teenage daughters um, and you've spent mm-hmm. eight months driving around the country in a minivan, saw 40 yep. states, two provinces and Tijuana. Tijuana, yep. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was quite a trip. Um, so yeah, kind of the, the story behind that is, you know, I was a pastor for about 15 years um, and then we had to close my church, which, you know, sometimes that happens. It shrunk down to where it just wasn't uh, just didn't make any sense to continue and you know so like many people we always like joked about driving around the country at that point it's like you know what what do we have to lose so uh it's a little more to it than that but we kind of packed up our girls in the minivan drove around um at that point my first book um radically normal just come out and you know 
you think that if you get a traditional publisher, like all your dreams are going to come true and it's all going to be awesome. And so I, you know, was very like excited to go do kind of a book tour and, and uh, speak at churches and speak at, you know, do signings or whatever. And there's a little bit of that, but more than anything, that trip ended up being uh, more of a sabbatical for me. You know, after 15 years uh, at one, you know, being a pastor, I was really ready for that. Um, and, but it was an amazing thing. I mean, it's hard to comprehend how big and how um, diverse this country is. You know, so I'm in the Northwest and you're in SoCal, right? Yeah, yeah. So good. And so actually, you're not terribly far from uh, Montebello, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I think just a couple yeah, That's hours. where my, my great grandparent was that? Oh, yeah, just a couple, a couple of minutes, not minutes, but a couple hours. I mean, right? Yeah. But yeah. So, anyways, yeah, I actually did my undergrad down that area. My, uh, my family's kind of from that area. I had, uh, my uh, great grandparents lived in, uh, yeah, in Montebello uh, down there. I think just, yeah, kind of in that area. And, uh, so that to say, you know, it's, it's just it, traveling the country is really cool. Got it's a great perspective. But I came back from that and just really didn't want to be a pastor anymore. I mean, being pastors, uh, I enjoyed it, but it's not the sort of job you do because um, for the money. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's plenty of jobs. If you're just out there and need to earn a check, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. But you don't want your a counselor. You don't want a pastor. You don't want some of these politicians to be doing it for the money, right? Um, and so at that point, by what, what I really realized, I love to write, and that's what I wanted to do. And as a pastor, I did a lot of writing as well, as well as having my book published. So I became a bartender instead, and uh, which was a lot of fun. I, I really did enjoy bartending. And during that time, about five years, I wrote my novel, which um, I got finished. Uh, I've been trying to shop it around. Haven't had great luck with it. That's, you know, that happens a lot. Um, but uh, then COVID came along, and that kind of changed everything pretty substantially for a lot of us in the service, well, just for the entire country. But, you know, um, over the past several months, I've used that to kind of pivot away from the service industry into now being a full-time freelance um, ghostwriter, um, developmental editor. And we can talk later, you know, if people want to know kind of what the different types of editing are. Uh, and it's, I'm, I'm starting to make a living at it. You know, certainly being a freelancer, it's a little scary. Um, but I've had some great contracts and so I've been able to work with a couple of great people and uh yeah so that's kind of i guess the, the short the short bio that is awesome that is awesome and you know what you probably know more about la than i do because i i'm actually from norcal so then i just recently oh. moved so oh, gotcha. <laughs> yeah so but i'm like in NorCal? um close to san jose so like hollister um that we're like oh. known for like the greatest biker rally um well in before covid times um that used to be a thing so uh, in that area so I just recently moved down yeah. to la just a couple like literally weeks ago so you know the map way more than i do <laughs> i won't ask you any trick questions then about in and out burger and you know on which locations and all that right 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 or and, um uh, people are already asking me like oh uh, like so is it the i5 or just i5 and i'm like oh gosh where am I going? Because there's the SoCal slang and the NorCal slang. And I'm like, <laughs> that's when I did my undergrad down there. This I know is so relevant, but the thing that's so weird for me is up here, every freeway is simply known by its number. You have I-5, 405, you know, 520. That's all you call it by. And back in this day, so this was about over 25, about 25 years ago that I went to college in Southern California, they never called any freeway by the number ever. I'm now seeing where you're starting to hear it called by that, but at the time, you listen to the, the news, the traffic report as well. Okay, traffic's he heavy on the Golden State Freeway. You may want to take the, uh, the um, I can't remember the name, babe, but you have to actually know the names of all these freeways, and they have names, like from here to here would be this name, then once you got past this point, change the name, and I oh, mean, it drove me crazy. 
Yeah, yeah. You never know, right? Yeah, there might be a writer out there who needs to know what highways were called a couple years ago versus now. So it's like, all right. Which kind of, uh, that's one interesting thing. So the the novel that I wrote um, takes place in uh, roughly 1982, um, Southern California, um, Azusa, actually. It's not terribly far from where my college was. And so I knew the area and it just, I don't know why, but that's where I placed it. But I, it involved a fair amount of research for me to find out which freeways were still where, even that amount of time ago. And, uh, you know, when it comes to research for novels, because my theory is that you're never looking for 100% accuracy. The goal is not accuracy. It's, uh, and I can never pronounce this word right, uh, but uh, verisimilitude, verisimilitude, something like that. You know, you want it to feel real. And so um, that's always my goal. So there's some things I know aren't accurate, but in general, just doing those that research so that my book felt accurate and include things like, yeah, what, whether they call freeways by names or by numbers, that's just a, a useful, sometimes you have to either visit a place or else call someone from there and kind of just chat. Yeah, you know, and that is awesome. That's actually one of the questions I was going to ask you was research. And um, mm-hmm. you know, I do want to get back to talking about, you know, radically normal, but let's, let's just, while we're on this topic, um, yeah. research and you as a development editor, um, you, you're, when we go to into research, sometimes it can feel like a rabbit hole and sometimes it can feel like it's not enough. And just like you said, mm-hmm. uh, verisimilitude, like where's like the line in that? Like, well, how do you know if you're in the sweet spot? Um, you know, there's a certain extent to which, um, for me, now, of course, every person is very different. Mm. And so the way I'm wired, um, ADHD, dyslexia, um, I'm great at getting, uh, taking a, a ton of information. That's what makes me a good developmental editor is I can, I can very quickly read a lot of stuff and keep it all in my head and then kind of help organize it. Um, but I suck with details. So you never want me to proof. I, I could proofread your book, but it's going to be painful for me and I'm going to miss a lot of stuff. Um, but so for me, but I'm also a naturally curious person. Mm-hmm. And so there's an extent to where I, um, let them just kind of follow my fancy. The trick is, I think is I have, I understand what mode I'm in when I'm in solid writing time, you know, you, we all know how hard it is to get to that spot where your, your words are flying and, and you're in the groove. The worst thing you can do is to be in a groove and then interrupt it to, to research something. Right. Um, so in my mind there's, I have a couple different you know, mode, so to speak, you know, writing, uh, editing, research, and at my best, I will set it, I will write, I'll come to something, and instead of like, oh, I need to look that up, I won't, when I'm behaving, when I'm doing the right thing, I'll just jot a note, and just put like a, you know, research here, note in my manuscript, and then in the afternoon, so mornings are when I write best, so I'm always going to do any interviews, anything like that in the afternoons, um, so what I did, I would then come back where I'm in kind of that unproductive time where I'm a little more like, where it's, I'm more likely kind of click my way around the internet and just kind of let it go. And sometimes I'll find out some detail. This is like, well, I'll be darn, man, that, I, I never thought of that. And so again, that's why I say about in terms of letting your fancy, I, I just follow my fancy mm-hmm. and just take notes. And I don't know if I'm going to use it. I may or may not. This is something from years of being a pastor, you know, for me, it'd be common for me to skim, when I'm getting ready to write a sermon, skim about 100 pages worth of material, commentaries, biblical studies, um, you know, other sermons, and then uh, kind of choose the best, like 10 pages worth of those notes, and then go write my own with all that in my head. Mm. But it's kind of, you have to kind of know, almost sometimes maybe it's giving yourself a time limit, you know, it kind of, it's going to vary for each person. Um, but the trick is, I think, is to make sure you, you 
schedule your time so you're not giving yourself unending research time. Did that answer the question? I'm not sure. I kind of went a lot of places. Yeah, it did. And actually, I think that ties in a lot to um, a theme that we have going on this month within Mm -hmm. the podcast, which is kind of following your muse or like you said, your fancy and and kind of knowing like where you're strong at and what times of days that you're actually like really on versus off. So totally, I think that that's going to really resonate well with writers, especially because I think that right now we have this kind of interesting um, stigma that a writer should be a certain way. And mm-hmm. we're trying to like develop like, hey, you know, you could be this kind of writer or this kind of writer or this kind of writer. Right. And, and every writer is different. It's just kind of like exploring and trying to find that. And it really is a, a big thing of know thyself. You know, you have to really be a student of yourself and know how you work. So for me, um, I, I write from a coffee shop. I'm in a coffee shop right now and they, they know me very well here. Um, so I, for me, if I don't have a certain level of distraction, I get distracted. Home is the worst, is typically the worst place for me to write. Oh. That's me. And uh, my best times are writing in the morning or late. In, and when my daughters went to bed earlier, I could write in the evenings a little better. Uh, but now by the time they're finally in bed, it's kind of late and I'm not going to be productive. Um, you know. That is- uh, so yeah, you just have to know yourself and work with that. There's no good beating up yourself like, oh, so-and-so does this. You know, Stephen King writes every single day except for, well, no, every single day. Yeah. Uh, well, that's not you. That's okay. Don't, yeah, don't, you don't have to do it someone else's way. You have to figure out how you work. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I totally get that. And I understand that. I think that's super great that you said that because it's literally what we're talking about um, in this cool. month's uh, podcast. Yeah. Um, and so, so based between the two books, cause you have the Christian book, then you have the non-Christian book. Did you find like you were yeah. working differently or because you kind of know yourself, maybe you were instead you had similar patterns of writing. What did you discover? Well, because the second book, um, the novel, because it was a novel that did make it a very, very different thing. And I had to kind of teach myself how to write fiction uh it's actually i was reading one agent who said that in his uh, in his experience very few um non-fiction writers transition well into fiction because um there's such different things the purpose of non-fiction is typically to tell the purpose of fiction is typically to show you know you know show don't tell right and i took that quote of his and pasted it on the top of my document and so i always kept on coming back to it so it's more than, you know, uh, Christian versus non-Christian. It was more just the type of stuff I was writing. Um, you're going to change your language based upon what your audience. So like, if you know that the people you're talking to are, um, are writers, you're going to talk a certain way. I actually, with my, one, my first client, I got, uh, I made things unnecessarily complicated because I talked to her as if she were a writer and she, she's not. Um, uh, yeah. But when you're talking to other writers, you talk a certain way. If I know my audience is largely going to be Christian, I'm going to just make statements that, uh, that I just expect people are going to understand. If I, when I wrote my novel, one of my beta readers was a, uh, an atheist with a PhD in psychology. Uh-huh. And I love that, her perspective. Uh, because there's times where within whatever your tribe is, it doesn't matter if you're talking 4-H or you know, Muslim, Christian, uh, you know, writer versus, you know, meat packing, packer. I don't care. You, you have phraseology. You have things that you just assume everyone else knows. Yeah. And so like, she'd keep on saying things like, wait, Josh, wait, what's the difference between a, a, a evangelical and a fundamentalist again? I, I always think they're the same thing. Well, no, they're not here as well. And I realized, okay, I need to clarify this in my book because a lot of people aren't going to understand this stuff. Yeah. Uh, I, again, I, I'm not sure if I answered your question. Oh, uh, yeah. But... No, totally. And, and 
So, um, you know, first the mindsets were different because of novel versus nonfiction. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's so interesting that your mindset shift had to change, especially with what that, what the editor was saying. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, so were there specific things that maybe you differ differently? So like, say right now, like you're in the coffee shop, um, mm-hmm. did those like small habits change between the, the two books? Um, with writing, so, well, first of all, when I write nonfiction, I'm still using a lot of stories because stories work. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't need to try and sell you on that. Just stories work for communicating truth yeah. um, or communicating information. So even like with my, my, uh, nonfiction, I remember at one point, once I got through a certain level, like on my third draft or whatever it is, I would just like do a red line along, just along in the margins, wherever there wasn't a story. And I would just flip through and say, oh, wait, there's, this red line is too long. It's time for a story and add a story. So let's say storytelling is already, I, I get its power. Mm-hmm. Um, but being a novelist, I, you definitely have to be more playful. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to really pursue much more of a what if. And um, I think John Cleese t- did this really great thing about creativity. And I know he is borrowing some muscles research, but basically, talking about these modes of of editing versus creativity open and closed basically and when you're in that open mindset you're just letting everything run and then close it when you're okay got your ideas now you're dealing with them and you're implementing them um fiction writing is going to involve a lot of that open what if what if what if and just allowing things to play Mm -hmm. i think what comes to developing fiction that's something that's so different from person to person um, so for me, um, I'm not, you know, use the term outliner versus pantser or, you know, outliner versus organic writer. I'm definitely organic. Um, I remember, you know, on Facebook writing one day that, um, today I'm writing the scene where, um, my female protagonist meets, meets up with her, uh, black sheep little sister. And I can't wait to write it so I can find out what happens. Oh, so cool. I, I walked through it that day. No clue. I knew they're going to meet up at in out Burger in, uh, on Grand Avenue in Azusa. Nice. That's, that's all I knew. <laughs> and I just couldn't wait to find out. Um, but that's how I function. Uh, but I do think that when it comes to novel writing, you just have to have a playfulness. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I might be biased because I am also um, a, a pantser, right? So right. I'm like, oh yeah, let's just find out what's going to happen. And I yeah. love it. It's fun, you know? <laughs> It is, but you end up miswriting a lot of stuff because you don't always know where you're going. <laughs> exactly. You know, you're like, oh, that one dark cave that I went down, never mention it again. <laughs> I'm just going to have to do nope. something else with it or throw it away or something. Yep. Yep. And that's amazing. And that's such a great answer to that question because, um, yeah, you know, we do get a lot of questions uh, from on the podcast that, that people are just struggling again, like with this idea of they have to write a certain way, they have to show up a certain way. And if they don't right. do it that way, then, then they're messing up and they're quote unquote messing up. Right. Exactly, and, yeah. yeah. And I love what you've, you've said here, which is, you know, not only are you getting to know yourself? And that has its own nuances, but also between your two different you know, books, that took two different types of thinking and approaches. And that's totally yeah. normal. Yeah. And it's, it's always changing. And, you know, you're kind of, and you have to really give yourself permission that early on, on you're figuring out how to do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, it's, you really have to have a lot of grace with yourself, you know. I think back to some of the earlier stuff I wrote and I read, it's like, oh man, that's so bad, man. There, there's, you know, exposition all over the place and I'm telling all of, I'm telling, not showing and all this stuff, but you know, what's where I started. Mm-hmm. 
and of course, this is where it comes in, you know, then you get into this later stuff about, you know, having beta readers, editing, killing your darlings and all that stuff. That's absolutely vital, mm -hmm. but you never want to start there. You know, you, you have all of, uh, you know, um, Anne Lamott's uh, shitty first draft, how important that is. You know, if you can't write crap, if you can't just give your permission, yourself permission to go wander wherever, you're never going to have anything that's any good. Right, right. And, and for those listeners who um, don't know Anne Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, right? Um, right? That one talks about that first draft and just just having at it and giving yourself, like you said, that grace of saying, you know, you have to work with something. So no matter how terrible it sounds at first, you know, at least you have something. Yeah. Excellent. And so interesting in that, I think is in that book, she said, but it's not unusual to end up writing something and the thing that even inspired you to write in the first place ends up getting cut, you yeah. know, and that, that, that's what happened with my, with my novel, the, uh, my whole opening, the thing, the whole place, the thing started, the conversation that started it one day, I just realized I had to cut it. And okay. There it goes. Really? But you don't do that until later in the process during, you know, you have to, again, it's playful versus work. You have to kind of have a kind of go back and forth, you know? Yeah. So what was your initial inspiration? And then at the end of that, the, your book, you know, how did that inspiration change or morph into what the end result was? Um, basically for so many authors, and this is, isn't all by any means, but you, you hear several authors who say that a book starts with a novel starts with a picture, kind of sort, some sort of mental image. Um, for C.S. Lewis, it was seeing a fawn, seeing a, uh, a lonely lamp uh, in, in a snowy forest and a fawn. That's how uh, language in the wardrobe started. Um, and you have these different people say, this is the story, this is the picture. For me, it was a picture of a uh, washed up or a, a disgraced pastor working as a bartender. And that, that was really, that's how it started. Now, at that point, I, you know, I was working as, as a former pastor working as a bartender, but I hadn't had an affair. I hadn't done any of the, any of the bad things that my character had done. <laughs> but it's just an interesting, hmm, what, what would this look like? And then just from there, it really wasn't playfulness. I didn't have any... Um, I didn't have any story. I just had this, this, this image of this guy. And then I say, well, what if his son, what if, uh, the son he does, didn't know he has walks into his bar? Well, that'd be interesting. Let's write that. Let's see what happens. And then we just keep on, I just kept on trying things. And, um, and the, the concept's all still there, but the, the nature of the story changed quite a bit. Wow. That's awesome. And this is the book that you're currently still pitching out there, right? Yep. Yeah, that is exactly. That is awesome. And like, in terms of like, just, and I, I don't know how helpful this is, but I guess this has to do with the kind of openness you need to have. It started as one book. You have this opening scene with the, uh, with the pastor, realizes that this kid is, is a son and, you know, just drops some expletives and, you know, kind of takes off. And then, then I ended up coming back to like 32 years later where he, uh, I'm sorry, not later, earlier, where he first meets uh, the girl that becomes his wife. Oh. And then the more I wrote, the more I started writing, I was doing third person POV, cause that's, that's just what works for me, but close third person POV. Um, then I realized as I started to interact with his, this girl who'd become his wife, Leah, I realized I really like this gal. In fact, I, don't, I think I like her better than I like Dave. <laughs> and so I made her become a, a POV character too. So now I have two POVs. And so I'm writing their story. And initially, I was just going to try and get through this, the earlier part of the relationship fairly quickly, then move on to, you know, where it started. Then the book turned into two books, because I realized there's too much of a story to be told. And then it turned into three books, and it stopped there. <laughs> um, but, uh, be but basically, realizing that here's, I have a, a good story to tell. 
and I knew what the story was, and it just it kept on evolving. But eventually, I kind of landed on this is this first book is going to take from basically from when they meet to when they get married, or shortly after they get married, because you know have have my uh, you know uh, final final conflict, and then the second book would deal with basically when he uh, when things go south, and then the third book would deal with you know he's been off running you know running away from her you know all this time later, so um, oh, wow. I mean it's a fun process it really is and. At the points where I didn't feel pressure, I really enjoyed it. There's the other part of me, it's like, well, here I'm making my family, you know, I have this bartending job. It's not necessarily the best for family life. It's certainly, it's a struggle. Um, and so the pressure to perform both worked for and against me. Mm-hmm. Um, in the, you know, I was driven. I am very driven. Um, I think some of that comes from ADHD. You know, there's a lot of things with ADHD, especially feeling like you're never accomplishing anything. And so you feel like you have to work all the harder to get it done. Um, that works for me in times because um, I am incredibly driven, but also works against me relationally because it's, it's very hard on my wife and we've had to really figure a lot of that stuff out. But also um, sometimes I didn't enjoy the, 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 the fun of it quite as, maybe as much as I should have. And that's and that's a really good point. I think we were talking about this in in an earlier episode, which is that sometimes you do find these places. You know, you, you have a, a lot of joy in the process, and then there's these places where you're like, "Oh, this is really tough." Like, I kind of don't want to sit down and do this. You know, so how did you push yourself to finish it? Because you're talking about your drive. You know, in those moments, what were you thinking? What were you doing to say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna get it done"? Um, it became. I treated it as a job. So I would actually say, I'm going to write, I'm going to work now. So I would have, you know, this time from this time to this time on certain days, I would go and write for three hours. Um, and then I would go bartend and come home. And it, it was my job. Uh, if you're going to really, if you're going to be a successful writer, you have to treat your writing as a job. Yeah. Um, because there is always going to be something to pull you away. Mm-hmm. Always. And whether it's a well-meaning family or, um, you know, a leaky gutter, whatever it is, you have to treat it like you're punching the clock. Um, so for initially for a while, I actually kept track of how many hours I wrote. Nice. Um, and so that I, was, I was treating it as a clock. Now, again, there, there were some levels of unhealth in there. This ambition that, um, that was not entirely healthy, but it got me to the place where I developed the habits. And once that habit's formed, then it becomes more natural. Um, so that's what worked for me. But you really have to, it, it, here's one of my big theories about so many things, but writing especially is why are you doing it? What's your purpose? Why does this matter to you? And that's yeah. one of my first questions when, you know, I'm working with, with um, authors is why are you doing this? Why does this matter? Because if you don't have a strong reason that you need a strong reason to carry you through the resistance. Mm-hmm. Now, if your if your reason is you just want to kind of have fun writing and that you enjoy doing that, that's awesome. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, then you can just kind of puddle along, and that's fine. But if you're if, so, for me, my I I don't think of myself as a creative first, and that sounds kind of weird to say. I I think of myself as a communicator, nice. and I use creativity to communicate. Um, because of that, I can almost I can be ruthless with my own editing mm-hmm. because it's not about my creativity; it's about saying something about telling a story that means a lot to me yeah um so i'm ruthless with that because i know how much it means to me my life purpose is to 
communicate things, things I think are important. Well, number one, I'm a father, a husband, my family. Those are my, my relationship with God. Those are like the center of my life, although a lot of times I get unhealthy and kind of wander away from that. But professionally, communication is why I'm here. And it's that drive. And so uh, an author needs to know, again, why they're writing. And if it's that important to them, that will keep your, your butt in the seat you know, to keep on writing and you have to keep that, uh, that in front of you. Yeah. And I think that that is so important because, you know, on those downtimes, that's going to spark you and help push you forward. And and so I'm I'm curious, so regarding your clients, uh, since you do developmental editing and you do ghost writing, um, what are some of the most common reasons of the whys, the whys that you find? Mm -hmm. Oh, did I cut out? The whys, why people write? Yeah. Yeah, I cut out for a little bit. I lost it for a little bit, but you're back. Okay, great. So you said, you said, so why do I find that the people do their very, why are they doing their, their, their writing? Yeah. Like, so what are the um, most, a lot of times it's, the most common reasons? Uh, I, I guess there's a lag. Am I bad? Yeah. 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 Um, I don't know. I would say for some, it's a business, you know, like having a lead generating. So I'm like a buddy of mine. Uh, he has a, a small publishing group and he and I are, are co-writing a, a book on writing write publishing, write, writing a book, publishing and promoting it. And um, he's the guy who knows how to get things out there. He wrote a book on public speaking. He's actually the one who turned me on to, um, to Podmatch. But um, this book, he, just, he wrote it by himself. He uh, self-published it, wrote it in like, you know, three months and all these things. I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I mean, the material, is, it's, it's solid stuff. It's not like... Um, it's not one of these for the ages type books. It's not, you know, like a how to win friends and influence people or uh, an element of style. Um, but uh, he's sold more copies than I did of my, of my traditionally published book. He's made more money than I have. And uh, so he's really good at that approach and also again, um, promoting stuff. So he and I, like that book, we wrote for business purposes. And so a lot of people are writing for business purposes. Uh, one of my clients, he's a pastor who does, um, he wants to teach people how to lead a church well, specifically with, um, if you have a church that's been around for a while, how can you help um, kind of light a fire underneath it rather than less doubling it stagnate? Um, so he's writing to, first of all, pass on these principles, but also because he's a, um, he has a consulting thing that he does. So he wants to kind of build the uh, reputation for that. Another one of my clients, she just, she had a really awesome life and she did some really great, uh, cool stuff as, uh, and like founded churches and all this. And she wants oh. to be able to teach people about faith and, you know, money for her is not an issue. She's doing just fine for herself. Um, so the, um, a lot of people though, they're saying some, it's the message is important to them. There's something that's, that they're wanting to say that they feel like needs to be said. Mm-hmm. And so that most is the most common thing I hear. Yeah. And that's awesome. And that's something that we talk about in the, in the podcast is what is the message? And, and like, just like you said, it's going back to the why, like why mm-hmm. you want to do this. And, and speaking of messages. So I just want to talk about also your book, Radically Normal. So yeah. Radically Normal, you don't have to live crazy to follow Jesus. Um, and it has an amazing amount of stars, um, some great reviews. Yeah. So, you know, for our audience, can you tell us about, you know, tell us about this book. It just sounds awesome. Sure. So just as a, uh, so I grew up in, uh, I, I'm reluctant to use the term evangelical because it's been so tainted lately, but in short, an evangelical is kind of going to be midway in between like a uh, fundamentalist who is like super conservative um, and a more liberal Christian who's like uh, anything goes. I mean, that's, that's really speaking very broadly. I mean, 
but basically try to take the Bible seriously, really loves Jesus and trying to do the right thing. Tend to be more on the conservative side politically, but not always. But anyways, um, so I, I'm writing within that world, that evangelical world, the people who you know, take their faith seriously, really love Jesus. But what happens so often among uh, Christians is that you get this mindset that if you're not like a uh, full-time missionary in China, you're not really a good Christian. Oh. If you just have like a day-to-day job, that's okay. You know, follow the Ten Commandments, tithe to your church, do all that stuff, you know, love your neighbor. But you're not really, you're not really doing what you're supposed to be doing. And so that's a lot of what I was trying to do is, is talk about how you can be a Christian, um, a fully committed Christian within an everyday life. And this story, uh, um, that this book was written, a lot of it was written while I was uh, a bivocational pastor, which meant I was being a pastor, but I also had a job, in this case at Starbucks. And so I told, told a lot of stories about uh, Starbucks and the struggles I had being a pastor, now having a regular job and, you know, um, things like that. But kind of the, the uh, so that's the purpose is to help people realize, help Christians to realize, you know, how they can, you know, love Jesus without being crazy. Mm-hmm. But kind of the theme of it is, is like, so I grew up, you know, uh, again, a good church and, and youth group, they would always talk about things like, um, you know, the image you're given is like, there's this path of life that you're walking down. And uh, on the side, there's this cliff. And um, this cliff is things like, you know, sleeping with your girlfriend, listening to bad music, smoking, drinking, all that stuff. And you have to really avoid this cliff. And I did that. I was really good at avoiding that cliff. I was, I was the good kid in church. Let me tell you, I, man, I did. Yeah. There <laughs> no, no, there's really no skeletons in my closet. And it's, uh, it's embarrassing, frankly. <laughs> they didn't tell me, because I don't think anyone really understood, is that on the other side of the path is another cliff of self-righteousness, of being, being judgmental. Uh, of thinking that you're better than other people. That's a cliff that I, I was cannonballing off of. Oh, wow. And so what I really try to do in this book is try to present this, um, this balancing picture of, on one hand, um, you know, don't do all the dumb stuff. Don't, I mean, I believe in Christian morals, so, you know, uh, by and large. That, that, you know, if you're selfish, if you're unforgiving, you know, if you're, you know, sleeping around, all these things are bad for our soul. They're bad and they're bad for our life, you know. Avoid those things by all means, but also being self-righteous, thinking that you're better than everyone else, that's also really bad for your soul. And one of the stories that Jesus tells, the parable of the prodigal son, which is, most people at least have heard that term, but in that story, you have the prodigal son who's going off and doing all the bad stuff, and by the end of the story, he's starving, and he's doing, you know, feeding pig slop and wishing he could eat the, the pig slop. And he comes back home to his father. His father forgives him. Well, he has an older brother who definitely is much more of this, uh, the legalist, self-righteous side, um, who was like, you shouldn't forgive my brother because he was such, he was so evil, you know? And Jesus is really telling the story not to the prodigal sons, but to the older brother, uh, just because of this, well, just speaking um, in terms of storycraft, this is something, you know, you and your podcasters will understand. The story ends with, the father saying something to the older brother, basically, why don't you come in and celebrate your younger brother returning home? But that's where the story ends. So we all know if you end a story early, you're really driving a point home. And you're basically saying when, when the sons get, the older son's given that uh, question, but he doesn't answer it, you as the reader, as a listener, are being asked the question. So his listeners were the Pharisees, and he was asking them, all these other people, are they're, they're coming into the kingdom of God. Uh, but you're not proving of it because of all the bad stuff they did. Why aren't you coming in and rejoicing and being part of the family? Um, which is all another way of saying that, that 
it's better to the, the the prodigal son when he was starving he knew his life was messed up if you have someone who's, who's losing their teeth because of uh, crap cocaine or meth they know their life's messed up you have the uh the the old lady or you know at church who never smokes never swears but is just a you know is self-righteous she thinks she's fine but biblically speaking her soul is just in just as much danger but she doesn't know it mm-hmm. um so that's a, that's a long ramble, but that's basically I try to find ways to help uh, Christians walk between that medium path. And it's funny is uh, one of my friends, uh, he and his wife, um, they're uh, PhD, you know, post PhD people doing working with lasers and, uh, and uh, MRIs and all stuff in Atlanta. And uh, she's a Christian, but he's not. Uh, he's kind of like agnostic Buddhist, but you know, and, you know, super cool guy. But he said, you know, reading your book. It made sense to me, you know, some of the stuff we got, obviously I'm not tracking with, but it really made sense to me of avoiding these two extremes, you know? Um, so that's kind of the short version, I guess, as, as short as I can get it, you know? Yeah, that is awesome. I mean, I, just based also on the reviews and I mean, getting almost like five stars on Amazon, because you know, that stuff is all people might come to understand. It can be difficult, but it does, it yeah. speaks to the message. And uh, um, I'm curious. So then at what point were you like, I need to write this book? Um, it's one of these things that I had this idea kind of formatting in my head. So now I said that like, um, my novel started with this picture, Radically Normal started just with the title. I like that term, uh, Radically Normal. And kind of knowing that I had the sense that we need to find kind of this middle way. And then now being a pastor, that means I preach a lot. And so some of these ideas start coming out in my sermons. <coughs> me. But basically, you know, we, a lot of us have been at this place where we keep on saying, we have something in our head and we keep on joking. Yeah, I'll write about that, a book about that someday. I'll write a book about that someday. For me, the, the transition was when I read Stephen King's book on writing, mm-hmm. which, you know, probably most of your listeners have read. It's, it's one of the best out there. Yeah, um, what he did for me was basically um, he didn't make writing sound easy, you know, far from it. You know, when he talks about his nail with all the rejection slips on it, but he made it sound possible. Yeah. That basically writers aren't this special breed that um, if they're hand selected, um, writers are people who just go and finally get off their butt and do it. And that's where I kind of challenged myself to get off my butt and do it. Um, and kind of, you know, I, I don't know how much I should, I don't want to brag about this, but for me, you know, initially I would like, I would go to Starbucks and I'd uh, get, spend a little extra on a coffee drink. So I was kind of treating myself and I'd start to write. And there's that, when you first start writing, there is that whole thing that um, it sounded so good in my head, but when I try to get on paper, it sounds like crap. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I do that for about half an hour, maybe, and then scroll around on Facebook and then finally give up. I did that a handful of times. And then I would also try to write uh, back at home in the evenings, you, you know, after my family was in bed, because my wife goes to bed relatively early. At this point, my girls were fairly young. And I had a um, big old bottle of Jim Beam, and I would uh, drink, you know, um, uh, double or triple of that. And as I sipped on that, um, it quieted the voices that said, you know, this is stupid. You can't write. What are you doing? What made you think you can write a book? And I just start writing without really caring. Um, oh, and then what would happen is I'd come back to, and I had fun. You know, I have, I, um, there's a power to routines, by the way, sometimes having routines can kind of get you in a mood. So I had, I had a playlist that I always used and, um, uh, little, Li- little, Mon- little lion man by Mumford and Sons. My playlist always started with that song. 
So that song, when I heard that, the starting of that song, it said, it is time to get to work. And then I'd, have, I'd drink my whiskey and I'd ride away. And um, then I'd go and edit it the next day. And, you know, yeah, a lot of it was, was terrible. But there was enough of it in there that was good that I could build off of. Um, I'm not, I'm not um, advocating, you know, alcohol as a necessary tool for writing. But it certainly, it, the, the necessary tool is getting the voices to shut up and just write. You know, so that, that, again, that uh, shitty first draft principle, you just have to get writing. And so that's what I did. I, and I did that enough. You kind of hit a place where it feels like critical mass, like you feel like you're halfway done. And so, man, might as well continue. In reality, it's actually closer to 10% done, but I thought it was halfway done. And so you, at that point, you, once you get certain enough through project, you're kind of uh, invested that that kind of provides momentum. It's the hard, it's when you're getting started with any project, that's the hardest. Um, they answer your question there? Oh yeah, totally, totally. And and going back to Stephen King's on writing, yeah, the nail with all the rejection slips. I'm like, wow, that is brave because I know I don't have the guts to look at like that pile just going up and up and up and up. Like, no, let's just put it away. That's what I would have done. So I mean, you're so right about him just showing up consistently and creating that habit, as you said. Um, and then of course, quieting that inner editor, uh, which I think that's, yeah. that is huge. And you're right. And, and there are different ways to do it, but really just trying to get words onto the page, which you did, yeah. you know, and, and that's awesome. So um, I would like to talk about also, cause so you're a developmental editor. Um, were you mm -hmm. your own developmental editor for your books or did you go seeking out others and how was that process? So I did it all myself. Um, when it comes the, uh, everything, well, I use a lot of, um, you know, definitely uh, beta readers. Those are, that's huge. But when it came to developing the material, um, I, I did it all myself. It is, again, we all have different strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. And um, yeah, I've done a lot of study on, say, like, you know, dyslexia and all that. And basically, in short version, I'm really good at the big picture. Just uh, the way my brain is wired, I can see the really big picture really well, find details I miss. I mean, to this day, if you show me a B or a D just by itself out of context, it will t I'll have to think for a second to know which one it is. The fine details just are super tough. Um, so the, between that and that whole process I talked about with Ryan Sermons of, of, of going through all that information, I just developed the ability to kind of find order in things. Mm -hmm. That's just the way I'm wired. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, you know, there's um, there's a good book on being a development editor that I'm reading right now. I wish I could remember the name of it, but basically called How to Be a Developmental Editor. Um, they can be very helpful. But as I read it, I realized most of the stuff it talked about, I'm innately doing. Oh, um, cool. But I'm a little weird in that most people who become development editors start as proofreaders and uh, copy editors and work their way to being a development editor. I did it the other way, exactly. Um, so it's just, it's more that I realize that this is something I'm capable of doing is holding a ton of information in my head mm -hmm. and then being able to organize it. So one of, uh, one of my current projects, this guy, um, this pastor, he uh, ha paid someone 15 grand to ghostwrite his book. And on a sentence level, the writing was fine. But on the paragraph level, it was a mess. It's all over the place. Uh, things would be repeated. He'd have stuff that really should be in this chapter, was in that chapter. And uh, I was trying to land the client. So I basically said, hey, uh, give me three days of your book. And, uh, oh, and it was way too long. So the, 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 um, the pastor knew that the book was way too long and it just didn't feel right. Mm -hmm. And so I said, um, 
I will, I'll give me three days and I will cut 75, uh, sorry, the content by 25%. Because after skimming through, I knew I could do that. So that's what I did, which I don't really advocate working for free. Yeah. But in this situation, I thought I had a, it seemed like a good idea. And also, um, I, had to, I had the time at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, so by doing that, I was able to cut all that and kind of rearrange it. And that's where he could really see the value of hiring me. And, you know, unfortunately, I didn't get the, <laughs> nearly the amount that he hired uh, the original guy for. But um, I was able to go in there and just kind of go through and figure out, wait, this goes with this, this goes with this. And again, that's just, you have to know whether or not that's, if you're, this is more for writing nonfiction, but you have to have a sense for whether or not you are the one who can kind of make sense of it or whether you've asked someone else. Um, when it comes to story development editors, they have developmental editors for fiction as well, but that's a different thing. Um, that's not, that's going to be more just a sense of whether or not a story works, knowing arcs and, and things like that. And that's going to, for me, that's going to be even more intuitive unless, um, or more by feel and less by any sort of structure, just like, yeah, the story just doesn't work. And I think this is why. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome that you're talking about the different types of uh, maybe like mind, not mindsets, but some people are more attuned to proofreading. Some people are more attuned to developmental uh, editing and uh, as talking to your strengths and, you know, actually, so one thing that I hadn't mentioned, but, but you have been uh, touching on it is your um, dyslexia and ADHD. Mm -hmm. Now I know some of our listeners, you know, they are going through some other things like similar to that or, or really similar to that. You know, can you talk about that? Like, when did you find that out? And also how has that played into your writing? Because it also sounds like as if you're using it as like, hey, I'm going to use it as a strength and, and pop up this yeah. way. Yeah, exactly. So when it came to uh, um, ADHD, that I figured out, gosh, I'd say about 10, 15 years ago. I was probably 35, so about a little over 10 years ago, which is kind of weird to learn that so late in life. Um, kind of with, with the, because uh, you just, you, you've, it's, this is what I do. This is, seems normal. I mean, isn't everyone this way? Doesn't everyone panic when they uh, have to put their shoes on? Because right. literally getting my shoes on um, can send me into panic because I get really flustered about which shoe and do I do this first or wait, wait. And, and my, all these thoughts are going through my brain. Oh. Um, but my doctor, uh, someone, I, I joked about it enough and I basically got a, my, my uh, leadership team, I'd have them give me annual reviews because I really believe in, in being a, uh, in learning and growing. And they gave me some stuff that I finally said, you know what, I'm, I'm going to stop joking about this and just find out. So I talked to my doctor and he said, well, there's not really, I can ask you questions, but there's no like medical blood test to see for ADHD. Tell you what, I'll, I'll give you a subscription. Uh, not, I'll give you um, some Ritalin and if it calms you down, then you have it. If it sends you higher than a kite, then you, you don't. And I'll never forget that first time I took it and driving along the street, realizing I wasn't having to look at every person that walked past me and to, uh, to be in it, we went to this meet this church and they're like trying this, you know, this marriage video thing. And about halfway through the day, as the riddle and started to wear off, realizing, wait, I don't know what this room looks like. Because typically when I walk into a room, I check everything out. And oh, wait, weird. I can, I now am feeling the chair on my fingertips again. These are all these things I would normally do that I didn't, re- you know, I would normally feel all these things, see all these things. And so that's been a challenge of just trying to um, learn how to work with my waves of, of, um, of the hyper-focus that comes with ADHD. Um, you know, that if I can get on a wave, man, I can just, I can ride that thing. At the same time, it has huge relational issues. Um, ADHD is like a huge, uh, can be a huge cause of divorce, quite frankly, and uh, without people realizing it. Because um, my focus is so much on everything 
that I have a hard time paying attention. So the, the number of things my wife tells me that I just simply, I don't hear is huge. And it sounds funny. It makes for some good jokes, but the reality is if you're, if you felt like your spouse was never listening to you, it's actually not that much fun. Um, so that was, but so that that's on a personal level, I've been working with that, but then on, uh, in terms of writer, just trying to write, know my, my cycles. Like I have to, again, writing in the morning, knowing what works for me. The dyslexia is a much more recent thing where my, uh, this was gosh, less than a year ago. I six, seven, eight, nine months ago, my daughter, my youngest daughter comes up to me and says, dad, I, I think I have dyslexia. And I'm like, Oh, okay. So I did some research, but crap. I think I have it. And it's actually oh. hugely, uh, massively hereditary. Um, and because I always had dyslexia defined to me as like words moving around on a page. Mm -hmm. um, I, I just, that's, that doesn't happen to me. So I just never even dawned on me to even ask the question. And because I'm a good reader, I thought, mm -hmm. I just, again, didn't even enter the question. Well, I'm actually not really a good reader. I'm a great skimmer. When I read a book, any book, whether reading Harry Potter or, um, you know, you know, elements of style or whatever, um, I'm probably only reading roughly a third of the words yeah. and picking up about two thirds of the content and being quite happy to miss that other third. I, I don't care about it. And so that does mean, again, it's that, that ability to take in a lot of information, but miss a lot of fine details. Mm -hmm. um, so I've learned to work with it. I've learned tools. Um, one of my most important tools um, is um, Microsoft um, Word products. Um, sorry, phone going off. I thought, no I, had the, I thought I had on Do Not Disturb, but apparently not. Um, Microsoft Word products have a read aloud feature, and I have the shortcut it on all of my programs and so when i re write an email if it's a me email of any sort of significance like you know when i wrote to you or um you know a potential client i after i write it i will listen to it because it's much easier to pick things up listen to it than reading it and the number of errors i could either be feel really stupid for this the stuff i miss and I fight with that sometimes because I mean, just like you just the, the errors that I make are like, good Lord, you look like an ignoramus. But the reality is that's my, the way my brain works. It's going to miss stuff. So I, I, most of the time I'm good with like, yeah, laughing at it. There it is. That's one of my most important, that's been become one of my most important tools is using um, that read aloud feature. And there's a, there's some websites that do that without having to actually have, uh, you know, office uh, 365. Um, anyways, there's a lot of stuff there. I, I don't know, you know, the catch most most of what you're asking yeah yeah and, and you know even this in itself you know i could i could see this being a whole other like interview because I mean, you're talking about your strengths and you're talking about um the obstacles that you have really like faced or didn't even know were going on and and right. yet you still use that to say okay I'm maybe this is not super strong, but this is strong and I'm going to go ahead and help people and use that to see the bigger picture, like you said, and get them organized and, and just really have that as a huge strength. I mean, that is, that's fantastic, you know, especially yeah. because some of our, our writers, you know, they do feel like, like, oh, well, if I have this or I don't have that, then, you know, might as well not be writing. And that's not the case. Right? No. It's, there's such a thing to, to come to just appreciate, um, you know, it's definitely a biblical value of grace, uh, biblical value, and that is grace, which is basically recognizing, you know, roughly God loves you no matter what, and that your value doesn't come from what you do, but from who you are, that you're a child of God. And so from that, 
on my best days, I can see my weaknesses and just be fine with it, you know, try and prove where I can, but you know, this is who I am. God still loves me. Um, my, my wife, and my kids still love me and I'm just going to do my best. And I'm going to, this is the other really important thing, find people who can shore up what I can't do. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just so crucial that you can be asking for people to make up what you're not good in. Um, you, you just have to be able to do that, you know, and for that, you have to need to know what you're not good in and you have to be honest enough. And, and that takes a certain level of humility, but also takes a, a, a great deal of strength to say, yeah, I suck at this. Uh, can you help me? And if you can't do that, gosh, I know writers who don't want anyone to read their stuff before, you know, the, the, they think they're going to submit it to an edit, an agent, huh? No, everything I write goes through other people for multiple reasons. You know, um, you have to bring other people in that takes humility. And like, again, just back to the main point, you know, know where you're weak at. Don't freak out about it. Find people who can help you there. You know, it, it, it's, it's a, it works great. And that now is a lot of what ghost writing is, you know, here, I've spent 15 years honing my ability to write, you know, between sermon writing, book writing, all those things. I've spent all this time and I, and I, I can research the crap out of anything. I mean, my bookshelf has so many books about anything that whatever happens to be of interest to me. Um, so I spent a lot of time developing this. Now you take someone who like, uh, you know, a pastor spent all these years being a pastor or um, a politician or athlete, an actor who spent all this time honing that craft. Well, they have a story to tell. They or they maybe have some great business principles, whatever it is, but they're not great writers. So there, there's nothing wrong with that. There can be like the sense like, well, you should write your own books. Well, no, I've spent a lot of time honing this craft. And it's kind of silly for someone else to think that they can just pick up a pen or sit down a computer and do what I do because I spent this time, this time doing it. So the, the go, at its best, ghostwriting is this uh, great um, um, partnership where it's like you have the skills, you have the experience, you've lived this life, and you have these principles, but now I have this ability to write and I also know how to interview, how to pull things out of you. I know how to craft stories. I know where to use stories and which stories work best to illustrate which things. So let's work together. And so that's, that's kind of the ideal ghostwriting situation. Yeah. And editing, yeah. That, is, that is beautifully said. I mean, it's beautifully said because you're talking about your value is outside of that. You know, like you're a child of God, mm-hmm. you are valuable. And then saying, okay, now that you know that, go ahead and you can have the humility to say, um, like, and the vulnerability to say, you know, I need help with this. And that is fantastic. Yeah. And it sounds like you as a developmental editor and ghost writer, you are, you know, taking care of the story. You will have that love of story. You can totally tell that you're like, let me take, you know, this person's you know, quote unquote baby, and I'm going to take care of it and help you tell us the best way that we can. That is, I, I just want, yeah, I want to make people shine. I mean, that, that really is what it is. You know, that's, yeah. Amazing. And I could totally tell. I could totally tell. Oh my gosh. You know, this has been amazing. And to be honest, I'm going to tell you, look, I had a list of notes that we hardly touched. So <laughs> um, hopefully we can meet together again soon because I think this Absolutely. was fantastic. You know, and so for our listeners, you know, go ahead and tell us where can they find you? Where can they find your sure. services too? Absolutely. So my website is uh, Josh Kelly and that's J-O-S-H. K-E-L-L-E-Y. There's a second E on the end. That's what always messes people up. Josh Kelly dot ink, I-N-K, like the stuff you write with. Uh, if you do dot com, you'll get Josh Kelly, the musician. I don't play any instruments. You don't want me doing that. But um, so Josh Kelly dot ink, again, I-N-K, 
And if you go there, you can find out a little bit more about me. And something that I enjoy doing that offers like a free coaching session because I've discovered this ability to very quickly be able to ascertain uh, what people are doing, what is it, and basically give them some really good content, add some value very quickly. And, you know, if I'm able to help them just, you know, like half an hour, 45 minutes and give them something good to go with and that's it, fine. I'm, I'm great with that. But also that may uncover some ways where like we can work together. Like if you're needing, you know, development editor, like you have all this information, but you just know it's not fitting together. And I do everything from like a, like a full development editing where it's like a per word charge. And, you know, I go through the whole thing or do coaching, like hire me at, you know, just a, kind of on a shop rate basis. Like, okay, let's, you know, do X amount of hours a month. I'll kind of work with you and you know, I'll coach you through some stuff. I'll give you some assignments. You bring it back to me. I'm a line editor as well, which means I, I do very good at crafting, you know, crafting words. So I might be able to show you some tricks like, hey, you keep on uh, start with having this phrase at the beginning of, of statements, get rid of that. Or, you know, all these things that you just you write enough and you just get used to doing it. So there's a lot of ways I can help people at kind of a lot of variety of, of price points. But if nothing else, there is you know, that free coaching session and, uh, you know, seriously, no obligation. But I, I will let you know, hey, here's how I might be able to help you. But if nothing else, you might gain something new from, from it. So that's, yeah, so joshkelly.inc, um, that's going to be the best way to get hold of me. That is excellent. And for all our listeners, yeah, you know, go and take advantage of this because I have a professional writer, you know, share their knowledge, um, share their expertise, and not just that, but to come from where you're coming from as a developmental editor and a ghostwriter, I mean, that's a unique um, perspective. You, so everybody's listening, jump in there. So that's joshkelly.inc. You will find him there. And Josh, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so we'll close out here. Yeah. And Thank you know, you so much for, yeah, it's a lot of fun for me to talk about this stuff. I really appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. Excellent. All right, everyone. Um, thank you so much for joining us, Josh. Thanks again. And hopefully we're going to see you again really soon. So thanks. Hey there, writer. Thank you for listening to the How to Write a Book podcast with your host, Masier Valenzuela. If you like the show, we'd be happy if you left a review. For more information on writing and the writer's life, go to www.themasiel.com. That's www.themasiel.com. We'll see you on the other side.